Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hello there. I'm Sally. I'm so happy that you're here with me today. I hope you're doing well. Life is really weird, and I'm going to say that you're doing a great job. I'm really excited to have the platform today to talk about this because, boy oh boy, do I often feel like I'm making a case for why it's okay to reread books. I'm not sure if it's just the people in my circles who feel this way, but a lot of folks seem surprised when I tell them that I love rereading books. And not just like, oh, the third book in a series is coming out, so I'll reread the first two. I'll just reread a random book in a series or a standalone book. And I get it, like, it's easy to get caught up in the so many books, so little time of it all, and I'm guilty of it myself sometimes. But I just think there are so many great reasons to read something for the second or third or tenth time, and I love that I often learn a lot in the process of doing that, either about myself or the books that I'm reading or my taste or something like that. And so I wanted to share some of the reasons why I love rereading books and the benefits that I get from doing it. So number one is probably the most common reason for rereading, and that's, of course, just the joy and comfort of reading a book that I know I'm going to love. There was a period of time where I was rereading Rebecca every fall, and first of all, it just really cemented how much I love that book, and it just always struck me that I was still feeling the same sense of dread and anxiety throughout the book, even though I knew exactly what was going to happen. And even if I take a pause and I don't read it, you know, for a year, and maybe there are some surprises the next time that I go around, get around to it, it's still just such a joy, especially like over the last couple of years with everything being the way that it's been. There's nothing quite like that, like entering a world that you know that you love. Another reason that I read, that I reread is because I love learning more about myself and my reading tastes and how it changes over time. So if there's something new that I like or dislike in a book that I've read before, I find that that gives me a lot of insight into who I am as a reader. Yeah, sometimes that means reading a book that blew me away the first time and finding that there's not actually that much magic there. So maybe it was just like the time and place that I was in the first time and it couldn't be recreated. And that's certainly disappointing. But more often, I find that it's a really great way to discover tropes or genres that I've outgrown so I can avoid them for a while or discover tropes and genres that I'm really into all of a sudden and I haven't really been in the past. Like maybe I read a horror book and I liked it the first time, but I wasn't really sure why. And then upon rereading it, I'm like, oh, wow, I'm really into horror now. I don't have an exact example for that, (laughs) but something like that has certainly happened. And a similar thing is discovering something in the text that I didn't pick up on the first time. This is particularly fun when rereading a series, like once it's complete, because maybe there's a side character that I didn't think that much of or a plot point that was teased early on and it doesn't come back around until the very end. 
To me, this is one of the most joyful experiences as a reader because you get to really appreciate the craft of writing and the work that the author put in to, you know, plant those seeds early on and then come back to them later. And that's like, oh, it just really is one of my favorite things as a reader. Another reason that I like rereading books is to cement them as a favorite. This might just be a me thing, but I don't usually consider a book an all-time favorite until I've read it at least twice and loved it both times. Again, maybe this is just me. <laughs> maybe it's just a weird quirk that I have, but like it just feels strange, right? Because like, I don't know, maybe it was just the circumstance, the time, the place. Maybe I was really, you know, on a YA romance kick and I decided that this was one of my favorite books, but then I reread it and I'm like, oh, this is just fine. <laughs> Or like, this is just like every other, you know, YA romance, but I just hadn't read enough of them. That's maybe a bad example because I read so much YA romance, but you know what I mean. So I think that it offers a really fun opportunity to also be able to explain to somebody why a book is your favorite. So for example, when I reread Sorrowland, when I first read Sorrowland, it was around the time of the centennial of the Tulsa Massacre. And so I wasn't sure if it was just because it was that time and like the themes in Sorrowland felt so pertinent and so timely. And so then I, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to call it an all-time favorite until I read it again. And I reread it and I liked it even more the second time around. And I was able to pinpoint like, oh, I really love the body horror. I really love how it plays with like speculative and, you know, sci-fi and fantasy and all of these different components. And I couldn't really say that the first time around because I was just so emotionally caught up in it. So that's sort of like two reasons in one. But certainly cementing a book as my favorite is why I will often reread a book that I really loved the first time around. And sometimes I read them and I'm like, okay, I do love this still, but it's not an all-time favorite. And then last reason that I wanted to share is maybe the most helpful when I offer this to people, and it's just to get out of a reading slump. If I find that I'm not enjoying anything that I'm reading or reading is not feeling fun anymore, I will often pick up a favorite book or a book that maybe isn't an all-time favorite, but I know that I like. Usually I'll pick up something short, something that's a quick and easy read that I know for sure I'll enjoy. So one of the books from the Wayward Children series or the Up and Under series, both by Sean and McGuire, although the Up and Under one is a different name. Or if I want to immerse myself for a while in a story that I know I'll love, I'll reread The Passage by Justin Cronin or something similar to that, like a longer book where I'm like, okay, for like the next week, this is the world that I'm in. And if that doesn't get me out of a slump, then I know that it's time to take a break from reading. So it has that benefit to it too. If I'm not getting what I want out of that, then I might not read a book for a week, two weeks, maybe a month so that I don't force myself to just keep reading and then get further into a slump. Nobody likes that. So those are just some of the reasons that I reread. If you reread books, I'd love to know what you get out of it and which ones in particular you love to reread. And if you don't, do you think that you might give it a chance? Let me know. You can hit me up on Instagram, Twitter, anywhere at Sally Simply. I love talking all things bookish as always. So get in touch. Happy reading. Do you love food and feminism? Then you will love decorating your home and filling your wardrobe with merch from Overseasoned. This colorful culinary brand features clever and bold artwork with cheeky slogans like shuck the patriarchy and cabernet and equal pay. 
Shop t-shirts, aprons, kitchen towels, baby clothes, and more with these fun and empowering designs. Top sellers include Smashing My Food and the Patriarchy Baby Bib, Root for Women, Cozy Crew Neck, and the Culinary Goddess Apron. And if you're particularly fired up about the Supreme Court decision, and who isn't, the ice cream for reproductive justice design is going to be just what you want to rock on a t-shirt or tote bag. These pieces have become cult favorites in the food world, with star TV chefs, home cooks, bakers, and foodies alike swearing by overseason merchandise. Nearly every product in the shop supports a nonprofit that's dedicated to bettering the lives of women, particularly those in marginalized communities. Not to mention that these pieces are highly functional as well as incredibly soft. And since overseasoned outfits infants to adults, it makes a great gift for anyone in your life and adds conversation-starting flair to any ensemble. Go to overseason.com slash shop and use code feminist to get 10% off of your order with overseasoned. So hi, my name is Ashley, a feminist book club content contributor, and I am joined today with Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. She studied creative writing at Dartmouth College and Law at UC Berkeley. Her novel, The Revisioners, won an NAACP Image Award, and her debut novel, A Kind of Freedom, was long listed for the National Book Award. And she joins us today to talk about her latest novel, On the Rooftop. Margaret, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ashley. It's so good to be here. So my first question for you is, what is your definition of feminism? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I would say the freedom for women to promote themselves and to make decisions for themselves and to live the lives they envision and to, and to have autonomy over their bodies and their dreams and their thoughts. I would say that is my definition of feminism. Thank you. And what is On the Rooftop about? It tells the story of a woman named Vivian, who is a widowed mother of three and she's moved to San Francisco from the Deep South. And she's come with all these dreams for a new life, a relatively more free life, particularly with regard to race. And she gets to San Francisco and shortly after her husband dies. So she's coping with all this loss, the loss of her old community in the South, the loss of her husband. And she has these three daughters. And the way she handles the loss is to pour everything into them, particularly their their singing career and her dream for their singing career. And as the girls grow, they do rise in terms of um, reputation in the San Francisco Fillmore era, um, the jazz era Fillmore of San Francisco. They're a singing sensation in that area. And Vivian sort of feels uh, sturdied and steadied by their rise and by their relative fame. And then one by one, each daughter decides to, to explore their own dreams and she has to find that sense of security within herself again. It's set in the 50s. So as you mentioned in your definition of feminism and also with your answer for the novel, there is a lot about dreams in the book. And as we, there's a line about Vivian and talking to God and how he told her like, everything that I put you through will come together once you see what comes into fruition for your daughters. How did you want these women to dream, especially her daughters? Yeah, that's a great question. I wanted them to each have different dreams, not only different from Vivian's, but also different from each other's, because I love the idea of exploring the, the spectrum of Black womanhood in this book. And I love that some of the dreams are really not audacious dreams. You know, like, for instance, Ruth's dream is really basic and simple. She wants to have a family and something that is relatively accessible in that era. And then, of course, the other girls have bigger and different ones. 
but I just wanted those dreams to look different just to show the individuality of, of us, of, of Black women. I wanted them to be dreams that they could take hold of themselves. Like I wanted them to have ownership over those dreams. So that's where those dreams would have, you know, differentiated from Vivian's as their own. I wanted them to feel the, the power to explore them on their own, even in that era even in the 50s when they would have been relatively limited in terms of uh, free choice, I wanted them to be able to have that, to have the gift of being able to explore what they wanted for themselves. And gentrification is a something that is happening yeah. at a rapid rate. What drew me to the book was how gentrification and it being this book being set in the ninth, early 1950s shows that gentrification is not some new idea. Is something that has been bred as we for decades now, yeah, and even for generations, yeah. And to have this set in San Francisco, which is a whole other world from where Vivian grew up in the Deep South, as you said. What were your thoughts about having her leave home? Why San Francisco? I know that you're you have your family in Oakland. Um, but why San Francisco? And what did you want to say about gentrification in the early 1950s? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I started off by wanting to write a book that was based on Fiddler on the Roof, you know, and it would, of course, be a broadly reimagined version of that. But I did want to have a book that was in conversation with Fiddler on the Roof. And so, of course, I wanted to capture the joy in Fiddler on the Roof and the tight knit community and the cultural traditions of definitely. But I also needed to have like a parallel displacement to Fiddler on the Roof. And so I was trying to figure out how people would would be forced to leave their homes. And one idea was to set the book in New Orleans and write about Katrina. You know, I've done that. I did that in A Kind of Freedom. I wrote a little bit about Katrina, more the impact of it, but it was a focus of that book. And I just didn't want to do that again. I also wanted to have this book be more heavily focused on the joy end of the spectrum as opposed to the loss and the sadness. I just had kind of grown tired of. And also it comes with a cost writing about that stuff all the time, doing the research on it, immersing myself in it and writing about it. It's not free, you know, like it comes with a price. It weighs on me. It's very heavy. It's not to say that I wanted to turn my head away from the societal ills that we're facing. It's not that I do want to address those, but I wanted to have it be a backdrop as opposed to the emphasis. So I had to find a parallel displacement for it to be in conversation with Fiddler on the Roof. And I really had never heard of the Urban Renewal Program, which was the program that was spearheaded in the 50s to designate the neighborhoods in the Fillmore as blighted and then to use that determination of blight to move thousands of Black people out of their homes, out of San Francisco. And of course, there still is, um, you still feel that gap in San Francisco. When you go to San Francisco, you know, there's still that loss. The impact of gentrification has not been healed and, and we don't have many Blacks present. So I thought, you know... That would be a good way, writing about that issue, which I had never heard of until I started doing the research. I thought that would be a good way to address a societal ill, but also be able to focus it on the joy of the Black people who had arrived through the Great Migration to San Francisco with all of these dreams. Relatively, it was a step up. They had jobs and, and racism, although it was a burden, it wasn't as much of a burden. And they had all this optimism and they brought all their cultural traditions with them. They brought the food, they brought the music. And this scene really was dubbed the Harlem of the West because it was such a it was such a magnet for performers and for Black musicians. And I thought 
because I could focus on that timeline and still have the majority of that focus be on the music, the dancing, the singing, the food, the optimism. It actually like it worked for me in many ways because I was looking for a book to exhibit more joy. And I knew that most of what would come out of this section, although we have this gentrification looming ahead, most of what would come out of this focus would be a look upon the hope of the great migration before the, that hope was dashed. And I just wanted to focus in on that moment so I could just live in that space where I would have access to really just all the positive emotions that went along with it. And, you know, we know that something negative is coming. We can feel it throughout the book. But in many ways, it's my least sad book because we also know that these characters will be taken care of through their community, even once they're displaced. And as you mentioned, Joy, I want to talk with you about food (laughs) because the food that you described in this book, I had to grab a snack while I was reading it because I was like, I am becoming whole hungry right now. That is so funny. And yes, I love the way that food is used for fellowship in this book. And as much as it is a part of grieving and loving on one another. So how did you want food to play a role in this story? And how did you want the characters to nourish themselves outside of food? Oh, I like that. Well, in all of my books, I focus on food. And that's really just like a selfish thing that I do because I love food. I love to talk about food. I love to eat food. I don't necessarily love to make food, but I do love to eat food. So it's just something that I, I'm always going to have. It's like, a, to me, it feels like a free way to add texture and depth and richness to a book because it actually invigorates me to dwell on that. So I just like to do it. It's also important in the book though, because they brought all these cultural traditions from Louisiana. And I love that. And that's, that's real, you know, that's historically based that these people came from the South and they brought their traditions with them and they brought their recipes with them. And in a way it They were able to create this neighborhood where, although they were in San Francisco, it still very much felt like the South. And it's funny because when I meet people who are descendants of people who came through the Great Migration, when I meet these people in California, we're eating the same food. Like even generations later, they're eating red beans and rice. They're eating gumbo because their grandmother taught their mother or their aunt or whatever. And I love that that has remained, you know. And so I think the food is just symbolic of the way in which we remember to nourish ourselves in the ways that would remind us of home, even when we left home. And um, it's a way of maintaining that link. And it's a way of like having left, but having never forgotten where they came from. I love the perpetuity of it, I guess, because even now today in 2022, if I talk to somebody who's a descendant, that's still there. I just love that. And how did I want them to nourish themselves otherwise? Such a good question because they do do that. You know, in many ways, that's Vivian's struggle is that I don't think she knows how to do that for much of the book. I think she's looking outside and she's looking at her daughters and she's looking at their dreams. And I think she's thinking that if they fulfill their dreams, that will nourish her. But that's not necessarily the case, especially not the case because the daughters are bold enough to go in their own directions. And so she does have to figure out a way to nourish herself. You know, I think that comes, I don't want to give anything away. I think that comes from her budding romance with Preacher. But more than Preacher, I think it comes from her having everything taken from her. All of the external things she was holding on to feel a sense of peace, the hopes of the manager, the hopes of the bright lights, all of that stuff that she was holding on to. When that's taken from her, I think that's when she finds that she has what she needs to nourish herself. 
inside. It, she doesn't actually need to grasp for anything out there. It's almost like the absence of those things is how she learns that she has been able to nourish herself the entire time. What did you want the characters to gain by owning their voice? And I say that because these daughters, they sing, that's their gift. That's something that they're using to get them to the next place in their life. But ultimately returning like to their dreams, dealing with disappointment. What did you want them to gain by owning their voices? It's funny because I, with each daughter, it'll be different. For Ruth, I think her owning her voice and her saying, I want to do something different. I actually think that's enough for her. I don't think Ruth ever would have imagined that she could have even said that. And so I think for her, just knowing that she can speak and then later she'll speak to Jerry when it's time for her to challenge him on something. I think her just knowing that she can be a voice for herself. She can be an advocate for herself. I think that really is her journey. And I don't know what she'll end up doing with that, but I imagine as she grows, she'll continue to strengthen that voice and continue to strengthen that capacity to advocate for herself. I think for the other girls, their voices were like a channel to what their purpose is in life. I think they had to exercise those voices to actually find out what their calling was. And I think when each of them does it, it's almost like a door open and they get led to the next level of what they'll be able to contribute to the world. In both cases, I'm thinking of Esther and Chloe. I don't think they ever would have found what they wanted to do in life and what they were really good at and what they could contribute if they hadn't said no to their mom. If they, you know, because that jump started the process of like, well, if it's no to this, then what is it yes to? Yes. I love that they each get to have their own personality. I think that makes it such a vital part to the story, but connects them as a family. It isn't something that deters them or draws them away from each other. It kind of brings them closer and makes them more realized. Yeah, that's right. I love how the book was written initially in a totally different structure. Like the perspectives didn't overlap as much. I think I had like, I wrote from Vivian's section and then I wrote from Ruth's and then I wrote from Vivian's section and then I wrote from Esther's and then I wrote from Vivian's section and then I wrote from Chloe's. And so you didn't really see the girls in conversation with each other. Their perspectives were not in conversation with each other. They just didn't overlap. When I changed it to have their scenes coinciding more, it was a good decision because you, you got to see like the depth of their relationship, like the miscommunications that happen when they have the same conversation, but one takes one thing from it, another takes another from it. You get to see like how they think about their relationships with each other too. They have different ideas about what's really happening. And then you have the reader's perspective where the reader can see like objectively what has happened. And I love that interplay, seeing the girls have these distinct dreams, but have such a similar experience. It just kind of amplifies the degree to which you can see their sisterhood. As we conclude our conversation, what bookstore would you like our audience to buy on the rooftop from? And what organization would you like to amplify that's important to you, to our audience? Oh, that's a great question. My local bookstore is a great good place for books. I'll actually be launching through them and will and organizations, Girls Inc. Yeah. And the bookstore of your choice was called? It's called A Great Good Place for Books. That's in Oakland. Okay. I have that down. Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, thank you so much for talking to us about On the Rooftop. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. 
I'd like to invite you to join the National Women's Studies Association this November 10th through the 13th at the Hilton Minneapolis for the annual conference. The 2022 NWSA conference theme, Killing Rage, Resistance on the Other Side of Freedom, seeks to open up conversations about freedom and justice, salvation and sacrifice, convenience and controversy, and whose life and vote matters. At our conference, you can connect with other activists, feminists, and scholars from across the globe. This year, the keynote speakers are feminist leaders Angela Davis and Anita Hill and many more. Don't know what NWSA is? The NWSA is the world's largest group of feminists, activists, and scholars dedicated to advancing women and women's studies across the globe. So are you a feminist? Join NWSA at nwsa.org to become a member and to see more details on this year's conference. Again, that's nwsa.org or follow them on Twitter at NWSA or on Instagram at NWSA underscore IG. We hope to see you this November here in Minneapolis. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature.